Blends are great. Welcome to the Level Up Podcast. I'm Wade Reed. I'm Aaron Pascucci. And we are once again joined by Janine Melnick. Everybody. Uh, Q certified coffee expert uh, and award winning coffee roaster who is actually here to roast us today. So I can't wait to hear it. Uh, That'll be nice. You you really don't have to. I don't think we've earned that. Uh, I'm just here to clarify a few things. That's great. That I'm very much on board with because we we need. Uh, you know, a little course correction. And in that vein, we're actually going to revisit a couple of stories, not just revisiting sensory science today, but we're going to revisit some of the uh, current events kinds of things that we talked about. We're going back to Tigray, Ethiopia, because we have a development there that is really interesting. And then going to talk a little more about um, how coffee companies relate to current events again. So it was now how many recording sessions ago we did sensory science. We talked a lot about the coffee value assessment, which is a big changeover for SCA uh, from a cupping score that's relatively small, relatively esoteric, not always well-defined, to a system that's meant to put more controls on how we taste coffee, how we evaluate it, and then how we actually say this is what has value about this coffee. And this is a huge topic. It's As we said then, it's like a 50-page beta. It hasn't really even been officialized yet. They're still working it out, figuring out what works, what people like, You know, receiving a lot of feedback. But uh, Janine has a lot of expertise in this area, in the ex- area of sensory science. She has a lot of training I don't have. She has a lot of training uh, that would bring... I think a a much better perspective onto the coffee value assessment and some of the things that we said in that episode. So Janine, how did you receive what we said and what sorts of things that we said were you, um, yeah, were you here to maybe add your specific expertise to? Sure. Um, First, I want to start with what we agree about. And I think that value assessment is a beautiful thing. I'm so excited as soon as I get my hands and my, my brain wrapped around that huge paper, I'm going to draw some infographics. I'm going to make it as approachable as possible, you know. And I think that that is a really important part about coffee culture is making it as approachable as possible. So everybody can be confident expressing their opinion about what they're selling and what they're buying. That was really the advantage of the old cupping protocol. Like those, those scores, the score sheets, you know, you could print like four on one page. It was very easy to, once you learned sort of the code of it, it was really easy to apply. Right. At the level of the the roastery, or perhaps from the barista's point of view, or from a layperson's point of view, walking into the roastery, it is easy, easy to use and apply. From a professional Q grading standpoint, it is not easy to do. And not just anybody is walking in with these forms saying whatever they think they taste in the cup and having that define the coffee to the sea market, which is where I disagreed with your earlier episode. Sure. So let me just walk it back. In the chain of coffee, cupping can happen in a few different uh, kind of places. One, the place where I uh, have my certification is right after the coffee's been processed and it's getting ready to hit the commodities market. A farmer can choose to have their coffee C certif- or Q certified, which means they get to put a little label on their coffee, um, and generally they'll charge more. 
for their coffee. Uh, and then, as the coffee gets to the roaster, the roaster will roast the coffee, kind of shape it um, along the lines of how they think uh, it tastes best. We'll do another cupping, right? Using the same form. This is where it gets kind of complicated, right? It's the same form, but it's used for an entirely different objective. Then the roaster will choose the, the tasting notes, and uh, this is how we choose which, which roast we're going to stick in bags and sell to our consumer. As we, we have a couple different roasts, and we choose our favorite one, and we shape it from there, right? Right. Using the number that we assign on this form using this process. Then sometimes the baristas will join you at a table, right? And they'll do their own cupping, and that's how they talk to their clientele about the coffee, right? But I think uh, what got me all riled up is I feel like we skipped that first integral cupping in the episode that you that you had earlier. Absolutely. I have a lot of questions about that too, definitely. Well, great. Let's talk about it. Um, maybe I'll tell you kind of how I see it and my experience with it. And if you have questions, you can jump in and let me know. Um, feel free to interrupt. Um, so the, the entity that guides how Q graders cup is a global entity. It would be a problem for a global entity to assign this job to people who will just loosey goosey willy nilly choose what they like about the coffee and grade it that way. Hmm. It is global. So people what enjoy is that entity called? CQI, CQI, the Coffee Quality Institute. Yeah, just for anyone who might not know. So SCA sort of gets their rules from them. Every country's SCA gets their rules from them. Um, so what I was going to say is that uh, what we choose to like, the flavors that we enjoy, the things that we would give a high point value to if the scale was enjoyment, is very different person to person based off of your lived experience and like how your mom made that comfort food or the birthday cake you had when you were five at that really great party. You know, those sorts of experiences shape what we enjoy the most. And especially country to country, we will have different experiences and we will have different tastes, right? Um, and if a Q grader graded coffee based off enjoyment, which is what I read into what you were saying, <laughs> that's why I got riled up, the whole system would collapse. It would fail. The job of that cupping is to provide you with a score that anybody around the world can relate to and tasting notes that mean something specific, to like the same specific thing to everybody in the world. And so part of learning how to do this um, involves uh, letting go of your preconceived notions of what say, a blueberry tastes like. It is not the blueberry you buy at Wegmans. It is not the blueberry that you buy in France's Wegmans. It's not even the blueberry jam, right? It is one specific canned blueberry that you can buy anywhere in the world. You dilute it to a specific titration, and you experience it in a recommended way. And that's how you know when somebody says blueberry and you read that, as you're a roaster buying your coffee, that is the blueberry you will experience. Right. So the term we right. usually throw around for this is calibration. Yes. And you're saying that across all of CQI globally, you are calibrated to specific standards for the use of specific terms. Yes. Is this from the uh, the lexicon? 
The lexicon is not necessary okay. to be a Q grader. I did the lexicon just because I wanted to be educated in that way. Right. And that is a huge glossary of terms that people apply to coffee. It's the flavor wheel and then some. Um, so that, yeah, exactly what I was saying before. When somebody says blueberry in this way, I know exactly what blueberry they're talking about. Honeysuckle, malt, whatever. You're, you're kind of keyed in. What is necessary for cute grading is, have you any experience with Linne, the, the little sniff test files? I, I know the term, but no. There are like 30-something of them. There's an enzymatic group, a sugar browning group. Um, there's a... Oh, shoot, now I'm spacing. There's different groups um, of smells that you must be able to identify. And if you do not, you fail. And if you fail, you can retake the test one time. And if you fail, you may not have this job. You never get to retake it. Wow. I mean, at least, you know, in the... Like in the sommelier world, they're able to take it many times, and that's that's pretty limiting. I mean, the two two opportunities is pretty staggering. I'm even sure for the work, you'd never want to take it more than two times. But well, you have to take it every three years. Oh wow! Oh, you have so to, have to refresh. It. Yes. Which I I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the whole point is that it's not loosey goosey. It's not someone's subjective experience. And that's what got me riled up in the podcast that I was listening to before. You can use this cupping form in that way. And I think a lot of roasteries do. And that's fine because that's on them. That's their branding. That's how they taste blueberry. That's their coffee they're selling with their notes. I think that's actually kind of a beautiful thing to have variety that way. But when we're talking about selling coffee on the sea market, we're, we're not loosey-goosey. Um, in fact, it's not just one Q grader that grades a coffee before it can get its little seal of approval. It's three. This was my next question. And if you don't agree, the scores are tossed out, and you, you start all over again. Different graders, not you. Um, and if you don't agree enough times, they check in on you. Interesting. So can I, can I ask a process question? Sure. So when it comes to evaluating, so if somebody submits you know their coffee to be graded, so I guess I have two questions, but the first one is the process of analyzing and doing that. What, what's, what is the time frame for a group to sit down and go through that analysis? Like what kind of time scale are we talking at to do that to one coffee? How long does that process take? Um, it, well, it's not a group generally. Okay. It's you're responsible for the sample that you have been assigned. Um, well, it's kind of tricky because you have to roast it. Okay. You have to let it sit. Um, I'd say probably 48 hours at most. So that's that's the resting, but so like from the time you sit down, you're, let's say you're tasting, for example. Oh, so sure. It's from the time you start tasting to the time you're complete with that like analysis, you know, let's say it's roasted. How long does that process take? So it's, um, it's just an, a, a cupping. It's mm-hmm. just the same as you'd use the cupping form in a roastery. About 20 minutes max. Okay. Yeah. That's still pretty extensive. I mean, 20 minutes, and you said, is, do multiple people taste it, or is it just one person? It's just you, you and the coffee. Okay. But um, there's Q graders all over the world, you know, so so they'll get sent to the other ones. As the well. same sample. Yeah. Yeah, so it, you're grading individually, but... You, you don't know. talk to the other ones. Okay, and they and somebody else, the, a panel analyzes it after? CQI okay. ha- is responsible for the, yeah. Okay. 
Yep. That's that's fascinating. And that's so each one's taking about 20 minutes after, you know, the actual tasting starts. So after these three samples get graded, you send them somewhere? You send the score. Right. You send the score. Back to CQI. And how long does that take before that gets back to the source or the roaster? Oh, there? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's quite the process. But I mean that's that's the value add is yeah. you know, the institute having having graded it. Um I think that was the that was the second part of my question is so we're using the term graded. Is graded meaning analyzed or is there a number at the end that's put on it as well? Yes, there's a number uh, at the end of the cupping score. You have multiple different boxes where you analyze different aspects of the coffee. Um, and then y- you do a little bit of math. Some things are multiplied. Some things uh, point value is heavier than another box. And you end up with an, an aggregate number at the end of this process, as well as some tasting notes, generally. Um, mm. Yep. And that's... So to roll uh, roll back in the process just a little bit, um, the farm is paying CQI, and CQI employs, indeed, indeed. Uh, employs um, a set of a set of graders. Yep. Okay, so this is something that a farm gets put on labeled a label that a farm has has put on their coffee. Yeah. Assuming it's going to add value. Yes. Yes. Through this process. Right. And and is it just having the label or do you think uh, the score actually matters to the value added to the coffee? I mean, I've seen coffees on the sea market that have a score and not a label, right? Mm. But if you know anything about the Q process and you see like a high score and then you also see that it's Q verified, you know that that score has weight. You know that there's been a process to train these graders. You know you can trust them. You can count on that score being an accurate reflection of the coffee that you're buying. I'm not sure who does the other numbers. You know, they could also be just as skilled without access to, you know, the certification. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And that's where I think one of the things we got into uh, was a comment from, from, I can't remember his first name, but Dr. Fisher, who said, you know, we're essentially disguising value judgments as sensory science uh, because mm. these are the farmer is in it for the value, yeah. the value add. <clears throat> and theoretically the value add comes from the label itself, right? You're saying this label means all these things. Yeah. And then the farmer is investing in that. Yep. Uh, so there's kind of the whole process is rife with the idea of a value judgment. Right. Okay. And where I think the coffee value assessment is is more upfront about that is that by disaggregating uh, one way of evaluating coffee, which might be uh, more attractive to the consumer from another way of evaluating coffee that might make more sense to people at this table and another way of evaluating coffee that's going to make the most sense to people you know, at origin who are sorting through beans, uh, like that physical assessment, um, we're much more upfront about the meanings of, you know, the point system that we're, cause even, cause even in this conversation, you can tell us about your training and that's like, it sounds like it's incredibly valuable and it sounds like it's incredibly challenging and, and it definitely, it definitely makes for calibration across CQI. No doubt. 
But uh, what I think, I totally lost my train of thought there. <laughs> well, so the point so of that, the training is not that it's challenging. The point of the training is that it weeds out all possibility of like confirmation bias of subjectivity uh, in relation to that score. Right. The point of the training isn't that, oh my God, it was so hard and I did it. The, the point is that at the end of the day, when you give a score or you say that coffee is malic, that that is actually what's happening. But the score, that's where I was going with this. The score itself is a number between one and a hundred that you can break down its parts and you know what that score means and the other graders know what that score means, but... The average you, consumer doesn't. You not just not just the average consumer. I want to even talk about like the farmer who sent it to you. Like it's not going to have the same valence to that farmer as even just the label does, correct? Like I disagree. Okay. I think that that number means a lot to people who are purchasing this coffee off of the market. You purchase coffee all the time. Do you look at the numerical score of the coffee when you buy it? Yeah, and most of that's coming from my importers. It's not necessarily coming from CQI. So, like, I, because I know them and I know I've dealt with them, I've had business with them. And so I'm more calibrated to them than I am to the standards that you're talking about. Well, generally, they should be also calibrated to this scale. Yeah, and I, I don't know which ones are Q certified and which ones aren't, I guess. So that, that's possibly very true. Um, additionally, I think that that number means a whole lot to farmers. I don't know. Let's ask one. Let's, well, let's, well, that's, that say, would be right? ideal, right? Yeah. yeah. That's does does it matter for how much they're getting paid or does it matter? Yeah. I mean, that that's the real thing. Like if, if the labels were something, then the scores were something above that. Like even if it's a, I'll just say a mediocre score for lack of a better way of saying that it's unfair, but true. Like, just getting the label shows that you're serious, that you're going to be consistent, that you're going to do something. You know, the labeling itself is a serious assessment. If you get the label, it means you're specialty grade. Right. Oh, is you, you don't do even... You get the label if you've sent in a score and you're not. Oh, there. so there, there's a threshold there's for a getting threshold. a label. Yeah. Okay, it's not just that it was evaluated. Yeah, sorry, I left that out. That's no. important. No, there, I'm glad there I is asked. a threshold. That yeah. does help, definitely. I don't think that it, it is necessary impor- necessarily important to the consumer. That that val- that score value, I think this this new SCA value assessment is probably way more valuable to the consumer. Um, but I think at this part in the the chain, I think it it has a lot of value. So I have two questions here. So you get the score. How does what happens if the farmer gets a low score? Is there information there that he can take and say, "Oh, I I thought I was doing right." What do I need to focus on? Because I want to get to that specialty level. Yes, absolutely. That is a huge part of why this even exists. Uh, if they don't, if they don't pass into specialty grade coffee, they still get all of the cupping forms, and and they can easily see, you know, kind of where they landed in the cupping forms. There's also a green grading form. Um, often that that'll have weight on whether they're specialty grade or not. A certain number of defects, and you're kind of out. And the defects are really clear. Like if there's bug damage, you know, you have to space those trees. If there's, you know what I mean? So it's, it's pretty prescriptive once you get the feedback. Sure. And I just realized that we're audio, and so you can't see me shrugging. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that it is part of the challenge with doing, so 
for for the level that I do it at, you know, doing doing judging of things, you know, sometimes giving prescriptive feedback isn't the role that you're in. You're giving evaluation of what's in front of you. And you're sometimes you're offered the opportunity to give some prescription or um, more, you know, not, not graded feedback. And you can give some of those directions, at least from the world that I judge in and the spirit side, like you can, sometimes our feedback is you should, you know, taste this against products in the market. We can tell what a specific defect is. And you're right. There's a general prescriptive, but that's not what you're there for is giving prescriptions. No, that's not what I meant. I meant often in the cupping form, uh, coffee will fail because there is like a defect. And I mean, defect as a very specific term, not a bad taste, but there it is obvious there was mold. It is obvious this was stored incorrectly. It's obvious that something bad happened to this bean and otherwise it would have been a specialty grade coffee. Now, mm. I'm not saying, well, you ought to change that. I'm just saying, here's your score. This is the defect. And that in itself is pretty prescriptive, I feel. That is right. very valuable. Yeah, that makes sense. So the other thing I was wondering, and maybe I just need a clarification here, where is the roasting coming from that ultimately you're tasting from? It's a set sample roast. And so that comes to you roasted, correct? No, it comes green, so you can green grade it. You roast it, but it's not roasting as you know. Okay. It's like a set it, not a set it and forget it sort of thing, but pretty much. Uh, it is as unshaped and uh, the same as everybody else's sample roast as you can get it on purpose. This has been thought right. about, right? This problem that you're pointing at? Sure, it that's what I was curious about. about. <laughs> so... Uh, I want to go back to the coffee value assessment because it is trying to bring in a lot of recent sensory science information, yeah. a lot of recent sensory science um, value, um, things that, yeah, uh, again, to refer to the cupping handbook that was recently published by Peter Giuliano, uh, just things that uh, broaden our perspective on how we taste and what we taste and and how we arrive at some of our conclusions. Do you think there's any chance, and I I don't know if you have any access to this this kind of this level of decision making, but do you think there's any chance that anything that SEA is doing with the coffee value assessment is going to change anything that CQI is doing uh, with the way that they interact with samples, the way they label samples, and the way they give feedback to farmers? Yeah, the most beautiful thing about scientists is when they're presented with a better way, they adopt it, right? So let's just give it time. Yeah. If it is a better way, it will be adopted. Sure. I I just came on here to point out just a moment, that you've skipped um, a really important thing about cupping, and perhaps there was some context I could give you about why it isn't just a person alone in a room with their own echoes choosing what flavors they like best. Sure, and I think a lot of the calibration that you're talking about uh, happens in what we're calling the quantitative assessment now, and is changing from kind of the point scores we're used to, or the point scales we're used to, to intensity scales now, um, which I think, you know, to me is super valuable uh, from, especially from the perspective of calibration. And so I could see that being valuable to CQI. So you think if the science bears out and if this, if, if this is something that that's going to add value to the the process you're describing. Absolutely. It will be CQI will probably adopt it. Yeah. That's really like, that's, I, I think that's really interesting. And I, uh, 
what then will that do to your training? Like, what do you think you'll have I'll to keep training? Yeah. Man. It'll yeah. be great. I'll learn more. Yeah. I'll be more useful. I aim to be a very useful engine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you can tell we have young children. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and just to go back, part of what I learned was the way that I've been using cupping scores in a roastery. Uh, you know, when you see the acidity box, there's a box with a scale, and it, it says acidity on it, and then you put on the scale <coughs> your experience with the acidity. I had been using that as, how nice is the acidity? How much do you enjoy, how enjoyable is the acidity? Exactly. And it is not. Nope. No, exactly. it's not meant to be. And that's that's kind of how the whole form is meant to be used, is a, is a rubric of intensity, and not subjectivity of how much you enjoy what's happening. Because S- you can give huge point values, to coffees that you don't personally enjoy that are excellent examples of great coffees from that terroir. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, again, gets to what's brilliant about the value assessment, disaggregating yeah. those things Yep. yep. Uh, and allowing us to look at this, these two different forms and say, this one's for this, do that there. Yeah. And this one's for this and you do that there. Yeah. Because I think that the cupping form as it was got very confusing on this very point where I'm, is it, do you want to know if I, I I liked it or if it was like because because like it might have felt like biting into a lemon and that's a lot of acidity but I don't want to put that high because I didn't like it like yeah so yeah I I that's kind of what I was driving at as I was both lauding this the the coffee value assessment yeah. and sort of uh, bemoaning the cupping form we've been stuck with but um, I think that's excellent perspective and it helps a lot it does help to understand just how much calibration and just how much um, um, redundancy there is in that system to really make sure that this is as much of an intersubjective um, evaluation all the way to, you know, if you want to call it objective, that's, I, th- I think you have, you're justified in that. Um, and yeah, I would never have had that perspective. So that was amazing. Is there anything else you want to share with us about, uh, about sensory science, about, you know, your training or anything that you think needs to change or or will change about what you're doing? I think what we're trying to do with sensory science and coffee is take a very complex sensory experience that happens to us in feeling and turn it into words that globally everybody understands. And that is just a mind-blowing task. It is a very difficult task. Um, And I think the way we do that is going to continue to grow and evolve as sensory science grows and evolves. We have new ways to look into the brain now that we never used used to. Excuse me, now I've got the hiccups. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, yeah, it's it, there. It's an exciting time with all of this stuff. I mean, you know, the more objective, you know, for for those that are doing that process, the more objective we can be. And you know, when you're talking about making it globally universal, right? You're not necessarily saying the notes are, you know, targeted to you know, English speaking countries, you're targeting it to the entire world, which is a very different thing than targeting to specific tastes of specific areas. You have to isolate isolatable things yes. that are translatable to everybody. Yes. That's why we test for things like malic acid, lactic acid, phosphoric acid. Those are, th- that's, that's science. That's not like tomato and cherry pie. You know what I mean? Um, and, and we test for those things by filling a table with a sea of cups and dropping malic acid in one and being like get it go get it um we have we have to speak a language that everyone can uh relate to 
Mm. And that's one it's of a the huge task. That's one of the very first things you do in the queue, right? The the um triangulations. Yeah. Of different titrations of acids and salts and sweet sweetness. Yeah, that's really that was really fun. That's a different one than the acids, but they give you uh they they give you this field of cups. Um and there's salty, sweet, bitter, um, and sour. And then there's intensities of it. So you have like a, a tray of cups and one of them's a sweet one and one's a sweet two, one's a sweet three and one's a, you know, salty and so on and so forth. So you have to get all those right. And then they mix them. <laughs> You'll be like, okay, this is a salty three, sweet two. <laughs> and and that, that is actually a really enjoyable time uh, because some of them taste like lemonade, like sweet, sour. It's like, oh man, that's lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I I love the idea of calibrating at that kind of level. That like as soon as you said that, like my brain just lit up. Like right, that's like, that's exciting, like to be able to calibrate at that kind of level because you know I do that often with you know how do I describe how do I describe food to people that were that we're offering with the service I run um, when I'm doing spirit judging. How do I describe that if I'm giving feedback? Um, and we're we're not quite as tightly you know as as Q grading or as like a court of master sommeliers is mm. with the with the grading rubric but like the training that i did through the wset was you know very much in that level where you're describing you know acidity in a scale there is a level of acidity that you're describing a level of complexity based on all these factors and it's you know that opportunity to taste at that um discrete level just just got me. I, I actually yeah. just got, I got goosebumps because it's like it, that's exciting. That, it that's is fun exciting. stuff for sure. And from a science background, that's that's what I want. You mm. know, the biologist comes in and it's like, "What's that score?" And I want to know, you know, what is the blueberry you've tasted? Like, send me one of those so I can understand. Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll send you a link to the lexicon. I bet you'd have a great time doing that. Yeah, oh, that, and that could I, be really I fun. I think the closer we stick to intensity scales, the easier calibration is going to be. So that's that was very just a very insightful comment about the system as it's existed for you know however many years we've been dealing with it. So, Janine, that was amazing, eye opening, refreshing, an excellent perspective that we could never have possibly achieved on our own. So thank you so much for that, um, and gives us a lot to think about as we move into kind of this new era of sensory science and coffee and. Uh, what SEA is doing with the value assessment. We're going to take a break here and hear from our sponsor, and we're going to come back with just a couple follow-up stories from previous episodes. If you want to learn all about the diverse foods of Rochester and Buffalo and don't want to do the work, Nominate is made for you. Nominate runs events where you order a meal that feeds two people, packaged to go for $40, but the twist is you have no idea what you're getting until you pick it up. Each meal comes from one typically small minority-owned restaurant. We work with them to select dishes that best represent their cuisine and make sure you have a fun experience. We host events at Three Heads Brewing, Fatty Beer in Rochester in the neighborhood of play, the new home of Black Button Distilling on University Avenue, and in Buffalo at the fantastic Nowhere Lounge located in the heart of Kenmore. Drink pairings are available for sale at each event that work well with the food. Follow us on social media at Nominate Meals and go to nominatemeals.com to order your meal for an upcoming event. Join the nomination. (laughs) 
Thanks, as always, to Nominate Meals, our sponsor. And uh, we are actually going to take a little trip down memory lane and talk a little more about a subject we covered before, about the war in Tigray, Ethiopia. Um, For those of you who don't know about that, you can listen to, I think that was our first episode it, yeah technically episode yeah. two i yeah. think i think i think on the sub sack you're gonna be looking for episode zero zero one though because i think our gotcha. first one was zero 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 um and because i'm very creative with labeling these uh but we talked a little bit about the war in ethiopia the civil war in ethiopia and and some of the consequences that it had and we talked about the aid that the united states had promised it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars of aid uh, that was supposed to be going to Ethiopia in the wake of the war. And I remember during that conversation, Aaron, you said something that uh, struck me at the time as maybe a little provocative, but also prescient, it turns out. Um, You had said that when we give aid to countries in these situations, we we never know if it's actually going to end up in the right hands. For sure. Yeah. And lo and behold, on June 8th of this year, USAID has halted their direct food assistance program to Ethiopia for this exact reason. And we're not just talking about, um, you know, a couple government officials holding on to more food than, you know, they they deserved. We're talking about an actual coordinated criminal scheme to disperse the food into local markets and, and enrich local governors and, and to actually be selling things that they were being given for free that were supposed to be for people who are actually experiencing food shortages and, and who are in, in danger of actually starving. Um, and this is just, I mean, when you look at a government that has already proven that it's willing to attack its own people, that it's willing to make war within its own borders. Um, I mean, it was, it was so predictable that it was almost just an offhand comment that you made. Right. I mean, offhand in the way that we've seen this happen, you know, hundreds of times. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I mean, you can think about it this way. Uh, I buy watches and a lot of the watches you get, you can't get from the producers. If you ever want to get a Rolex, you're either going on a waiting list for sometimes up to 10 years. So if you're looking for that Rolex, you're going to the secondary market. When you go and you find and meet a guy, you're essentially sending your money off into, you know, the ether there and hoping that it results in a transaction there. Now, there's some, you know, things that you can do to kind of ensure that, but that's essentially what we're doing. We're sending money over to another government, expecting that they're going to do the right thing, but we all know that humans are inherently flawed. So this, I mean, and this isn't even money. This is the actual thing that the people need to sustain their lives. This is the actual food. So we're not even that far removed, and we still can't get it right. <laughs> I, I, I think it, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible on the level of there are people who didn't choose to make war, and their lives were destroyed. Uh, there are refugees who are just beginning to return to their homes in Tigray and Amhar, and, you know, what are they? What food are they supposed to grow, or what food are they supposed to eat? They they haven't been there to grow the food, right? They they the region is decimated as far as the available resources, and you know, food aid, direct food aid, not money. You would think is going to turn out way better, and here we are. It's still uh, it's still the same old story. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, it's not money, but it is money. 
they're looking at that as a product that they can sell. And I wouldn't hesitate to guess that some of the people who are actually receiving the products are on some level still starving themselves because they're selling as much as they can to earn as much money as they can. Now I'm just, you know, commenting here on it, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's what was happening. Sure. Um, I think you can go to Al Jazeera. You can read a lot more about the scheme. Um, what options does that leave us to help? How, right. can, how can we even help now? Right. If we can't donate, if we're not, what, what can't, any idea what we could do from here? Um, so the central government and the African Union were supposed to be overseeing the aid efforts. So we have two, essentially two regulatory bodies working on this. And so the U.S. isn't even necessarily directly involved in the implementation. So I'm not, I'm not really sure there's much you know, you can do, I can do other than finding credible organizations that are maybe working outside of these structures. But I'm like, if they're working outside these structures, are they credible? You know, and if they're credible, they're probably, yeah. So I just think, I just think it points out that even when a conflict like this resolves itself and you hear, oh, this aid's going to go and, and we're going to rebuild in places like Tigray, um, the problem persists and it goes completely under the radar. Did anyone read a headline about this this week? Nope. Oh, of course not. Nope. So, I mean, for me, it came on Pod Save the World, and, like, I almost put a hole in my dashboard. I was just, like, <laughs> it's so... Yeah, how many bags of coffee did we buy this week, and did any of us buy a coffee from Ethiopia, and should we? So, we got into this, <laughs> this a little something. bit in, in the episode. I, I'm, at, at what point are our dollars supporting some... I mean, yeah. This gets to the relationships we have at Origin. This gets to what is the role, you know, the role of the central government now appears to be correcting this problem alongside the African Union. Um, and this does appear to have been like more of a regional government problem, appears to. Yeah. How, I mean, you never know if someone's covering for someone and is covering for someone else. Bureaucracy tends to work that way. Uh, and... I just, uh, yeah, if, if anyone does have those kinds of resources, you know, reach out to us, level up that WNY on Instagram, uh, level up that WNY at gmail.com. You can please let us know how we might help and we'll, we'll actually, we'll get you on air or we'll just at least become a megaphone for those kinds of organizations. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's the challenge. Like we're, you know, we can do all the reading we want and without being, you know, having been involved in the actual efforts or anything like that. I, I think trying to find, you know, trying to find, you know, people who have at least been to the area. I mean, it, it's obviously a big challenge, but that's the way where you learn something. That's the way where you you take that step away from theory. And even just reading is is kind of theoretical and talking about these, you know, potential outcomes and how do you how do you do better? Um, it's it's just one of those hard to take a step back and look at what, what is effective, but, you know, finding somebody who's maybe been, it doesn't have to be active, but maybe somebody who's actually traveled there and worked with those organizations or the organizations doing as good as they can on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And, and finding ways around the systems that we know are broken, that we can call out as broken before we even find out they're broken. Well, right. And that's, I think that's one of the things we can do is, you know, even if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, you've never heard anything about Africa, you go to the coffee shop, you're going to have that little twinge of, oh, I remember that episode. Should I buy that Ethiopian coffee? 
you're you're gonna think you're gonna at least think about it a different way, even if it's just for a second there. Right, but I didn't even know if we should or shouldn't at this point. <laughs> because right, so I don't wanna give money to that government. But those farms have to sustain people. Uh, and even after hopefully the conflict resolves soon, right? Yeah, so they'll they, be there. The the conflict was formally resolved in November of last year. Right, um, it doesn't sound like there's conflict resolution right now though. Right, right. Well, I mean, yes, there there are no open hostilities anymore, right? Like they're not it's not a hot war anymore. Right, but so. you just said that people can't eat. Right. Right. So that yeah. Oh, that's hard. That's hard to yeah, so even when conflict is with. resolved, it's not resolved. Exactly. Right. Well, so re- recons- reconstruction is, you know, the the effects of conflict are the things, you know, you you look, oh, everything's been resolved. The, you know, the side that we wanted to win won the conflict, won the conflict in quotes. But the outcome for the people that live there, it doesn't stop at yeah, the conflict. Sounds like they're still struggling end. to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And so do we do we not buy the coffee? Or do we buy the coffee because there are people growing so it's the it only on lifeline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and a lot of them are still displaced. So are we going to have the coffee, especially from the Amhara region? Like that's that's a coffee growing region. Uh Tigray not as much, but mm. I all really thorny questions and I can't help but raise the question again, what's the responsibility? of a coffee company to make people aware of things like this, that listen, these aren't the bright, sunny, happy stories we want to tell, but it's the reality. So at what level, you know, at what level should a coffee company be saying, we are choosing to buy from Ethiopia because it's their only lifeline. We are choosing not to buy from Ethiopia because the ECX and the central government will benefit from it. And things have gone wrong. Yeah, and whose responsibility would it be within a coffee company? Absolutely. Would that fall on the baristas? No, that's a lot absolutely for a barista not. to handle. Then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's an entry level position. Yes. <laughs> it's so like, is that an entirely new job description? Well, I, I'm prone to say that like uh, ownership and uh, leadership should definitely have someone at a high level focused on this and, and tackling this problem. But maybe that's because of like my position, but. Yeah, and who, who's who's spending the money, right? I mean, that's where you know, in the end, where the decisions are made. Even the person who's doing the doing the procurement, right? You're buying through a distributor. Well, in the end, the amount you're spending is dictated by by an ownership. Uh, or if you're a single producer, obviously, it's a different story. But like, you know, somebody who's spending the money is where's the responsibility and accountability? Why, if you're using corporate you know, racy terms, like who's responsible, who's accountable. The, the purchaser might be accountable to it, but who's responsible for that direction? You know, that's, you know, a, you know, somebody who's, what, what are we all about? What is, what is your roastery all about? What is your coffee company all about? What is your uh, distributor all about? Um, I was going to say, I think what you're getting at you have is to put values. there's actually responsibility at every level. Yeah. And there are different re- levels of responsibility. Like, you know, we might be informed as consumers and you might need to be, um, you might be a contributor as a, you know, as a roaster, you might contribute to that discussion, but the accountability goes to who's spending the money. The responsibility might go to, you know, who's tying to the farms 
And is that farm responsibly using their money or whatever? Like all those things travel through the chain, not to bring this to corporate speak, but that's, that's the reality is you have to isolate. Like you might be informed as a barista. You might be informed as a roaster. You might contribute to that discussion, but that's, that's how you kind of have to take a step back and look at who's really responsible to put the money in the right spot. How many companies do you know of? Could you name off the top of your head or even would you expect to have some transparency in this area to say like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're going to try to seek out a relationship in India because the floods at the end of December, 2022 decimated the coffee sector in the country and we're trying to rebuild it. Well, increasingly more. And also I find great value in companies, coffee companies that have a relationship with their farmers that the farmers can count on. So, so whether that is a difficult year or a good year, they're there to purchase a large amount of crop, right? And I think that that means you can't be a ping pong ball bouncing around between who needs you most at the time. Right. You have to be uh, someone that they can count on. And those companies are clear that that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I think that more of that clarity, even though it's not always like the the sexiest or most marketable way of talking, Right, right. Is, I mean, like, and I'm the guy who complains about two paragraphs on the back of a bag. So, like, <laughs> so, like. Yeah, where are you going to fit that in exactly. two paragraphs? Exactly. <laughs> How do you, like, what is the proper interface for QR that codes. kind of information? <laughs> QR for, codes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's just, d- let's just print six QR codes on every bag, right? <laughs> how, how do you, how do you define a relationship in a way, like, the, that's what that is, though. That's, that's the, um, you know, the local farm. Why am I forgetting the word, you know, the, the, when you're buying a whole bunch of, you buy from a local farm. Uh, why am I forgetting what that's called? A CSA. Um, CSA. CSA. Yeah. Like you're buying into a local farm. You're buying a share of food. Some years you're getting a lot. Some years you're getting less. It sustains your local farm. You're spending money with your values. And you might not get what you paid for, but you're 100% getting what you paid for. You're paying for the farm to exist. You're paying for that farm to sustain itself so you can sustain yourself with you know, nutrients that are positive for you. And that's, you know, that relationship, how do you, you can't isolate that relationship to a soundbite, but that that's what you're paying for. You're paying for a relationship when you do that. How do you bring that to your customers? That's, that's a challenge. Yeah. And, and I think coffee companies need to step up and be more transparent about those kinds of things and be really clear that when they're doing that, that's what they're paying for. That's what you're paying for. And that there's another side to the story, which is always there's, like, like the world turns, like it's, it's actually, you know, we're out here. Like you can't just isolate your coffee farm from the war in Ethiopia. You can't. And you might, you know, your family might be displaced for part of that, but you know, it has all kinds of tangible effects. And I think the more we can encourage that kind of discourse, which doesn't, you know, doesn't ignore you're not reading about it on a bag, you know, 10 years later, like after the war in Tigray, which is like how a lot of us learn about the genocide in Rwanda. Yeah. It's like, well, after the genocide in Rwanda, you know, the coffee sector led, you know, the economic revival. It's like, okay, but that first part, like, what is that about? And how do we understand the knock-on effects of that in Rwanda? I don't even necessarily understand that. And I, and like I said, I've encountered those stories. So, um, Aaron, sorry, you had a thought. I didn't mean to, to keep oh. going over you there. I, you know, as you guys were talking, the idea came to be that, you know, maybe as roasters and importers, we need to be a little bit more flexible. 
I mean, we look at going to a coffee shop, especially some of us really focused on specialty coffee, and we expect to only see the best there. You know, what if they were committing, like you said, to a farm? They might get some specialty stuff some sometimes, but if they still committed there, could they turn that into just a product, a lesser value, and still sell it, knowing that, you know, the same roaster is striving for quality, but maybe it's not available? Oh, yeah, often that happens. That's where you get your blends, is there's, like, the A lot, the B lot, the C lot from these farms, and you'll do the single origin as the A lot, and there might not be as much of it one year from the next. In the B lot, you'll turn into a blend, and, and you'll see that on a lot of roastery shelves. That's how we support. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I, I think that's, you know, to that point, though, like, you're asking that question, maybe that needs to be a more transparent part of the process. Because Who drinks their blend knowing that? Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right, and that, I think to that, be more upfront about it. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point in of itself. Is how how can we make that more clear? I have I have a little bit more respect for blends now. Yeah, do it. Absolutely, blends are great. Blends are great. Yeah, I, I do a lot of blends. Cool. Well, uh, I had more, but I think we're going to leave it there for now because that was some excellent conversation. Appreciate y'all. Uh, thank you for listening, and thanks to producer Chris Lindstrom in the Food About Town studio. Special thanks to our sponsor, Nominate Meals. Uh, if you like the show, you can find us on Substack or Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends to listen. Thanks to my co-hosts, Aaron Pascucci and Janine Melnick. You can find us on Instagram at levelup.wny. Please reach out with any questions or requests for future episodes. You can DM us, and I promise someone will read it. Enjoy your coffee. Lunchador Podcast Network. We all, baby!